0: You're listening to the Centre Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message, recorded live from our Brighton campus. So last week, for those of you who weren't here, or those of you who didn't catch up on the podcast, um, Julian was talking about the one. We've got a little hashtag about the one going out, which I don't think anyone's used yet, but that's fine. Um, Julian's talking about the one, about going to find the one that sort of one lost sheep he used the analogy of the lost sheep and how the shepherd goes out and he spends all his time looking for that one lost sheep and leaves all the 99 and goes goes to find that one and that God searches out that one and that he uses us to bring about the reconciliation Um, and so this week I'm going to tell you a story If you're all sitting comfortably. I'm going to tell you a story about the one who lost everything. Um, But there's hope. And the hope comes from the God who says that everything's not lost. So, my story is taken from uh, Luke chapter 15, and it's verses um, 11 to 32. You you can turn to it if you want and follow along. I won't be reading it out. I'll be sort of retelling it a little bit. Um, And it's one of the most famous um, passages that jesus sort of spoke while he was alive so i don't know if that makes it more pressurized that i'm preaching on that particular topic or not but anyway it's often called the story of the prodigal son but potentially badly named so this story this story starts with a father and his two sons and the one son says to his dad, Hey, dad, you know all that wealth, all that stuff that I'm supposed to get when you die, my inheritance, well, can you can you just split it up and I, I want it now? Can I have it now? Um, and I imagine his dad was a little bit upset by what his son said because essentially what he's saying to his dad is, Dad, I really wish you were dead. I wish you were dead so that I got everything that I, that's coming to me when you die which I, if I was a dad I wouldn't want my son to say that to me to be honest but his dad goes, yeah alright seems like a reasonable request, we'll do that anyway so the son takes takes all this stuff that his dad's given him and he sells it and he goes off and he wastes all this money he uses it all up Um I I was struck by like the phrase save it for a rainy day when I was reading this because the exact opposite happens in this passage what happens is that there's a famine and he's wasted all his money so uh, whether they had the phrase save it for a dry day or not, I don't know Um, but basically there's this famine and all his money's gone and he he can't afford to eat he can't afford to live he can't afford to survive so he starts working for a pig farmer. And in that particular context, in that part of the world at that time, that was like that was like kicking a man when he's down. That was like the rock bottom, the lowest of the low. That's, that's almost, in that culture, worse than being untouchable. If there is such a thing. It's rock bottom. And it's not until he hits rock bottom that he thinks, even my dad's slaves are better off than I am. Maybe I should go back. I mean, how often is that a picture of us? We set off with all these grand plans. We take sometimes what's not rightfully ours, what's, what's not ours to take. And, and we go off and we waste it and we use it. And, and we live like everyone else who seems to be having this amazing time. And we think, I want to be a part of that. We live in the now and then rock bottom visits us. And we reassess and we think... How did it get this bad? I don't know if you have been in a situation where you've where you've felt like you've lost everything, where you felt like you've hit rock bottom. See, meanwhile, there's the father, the man whose son wishes he was dead. He waits. He doesn't move on. He doesn't lose hope. He sees his son in the distance and he thinks, that's my son. He's come back. See, he doesn't care about the customs. He doesn't care what he should and shouldn't do at that time. How he should reject his son. About this, the shame that his son's put upon him. He's filled with this emotion, this compassion. And he even says, my son, who was dead, is now alive. My son, who was lost, is found. And the son, he's got this, he's got this whole speech worked out. He's got... He's like, oh, I'm going to say to my dad this, and I'm going to, I'm going to like beg to be like a slave. I, I can be like a servant. And he's like, whoa, whoa, stop. He's just, he's just glad that he's home. And maybe, maybe you can relate to the father. Maybe you remember the restoration of a relationship that was once so broken. Maybe it even ended on, I wish you were dead. I wish you were never born. Perhaps God's saying to you, you know what? I'm a God who is in the business of restoring broken things. I make all things new. Maybe that's the message that you need to hear tonight. That there's hope that that which was dead can come back to life again. That that which was lost can be found. And then there's the older son. The older son who often gets sort of neglected when we're talking about this story He just sort of appears at the end You know, he's out working hard, he's doing as he should He hears that this this party going on And he's like, oh, what's, what's this party? I can hear it in the distance And he finds out about this reconciliation between his dad and his brother That his dad, rather than rejecting his brother Has put a ring on his finger and a robe around him and sandals on his feet And he's given him a meal And he's jealous, and he's jealous of the fact that his brother went off and wasted everything. And whilst he was alone, he was at home just just doing day-to-day things. He's jealous of his father's love for his brother. He's angry, and his dad pleads with him. He's like, don't you understand? You've got everything here. You already have everything I own. You're already fully alive, but your brother, who was dead, he's, he's come back to life again. He's been raised up to new life. And that's worth celebrating. And so the story ends. Like, have you ever been the person who's been toiling, who's been trying, who's been working hard, and you never get the attention you deserve, and you're not the one who's loved because everyone seems to be just treating you like you're the person who just works hard and that's, that's just what you do. Maybe you struggle to celebrate the one who's done all this terrible stuff and they come back and they, they get celebrated and, and there's a party thrown for them. Maybe you struggle with that. Maybe you struggle to see the person who you once knew doing all this stuff as the new person. Maybe you struggle to look past the choices that that person made in the past. When the Father says, have a robe and a ring on your finger and come and and share a meal. Maybe you struggle with that. Maybe that's you. Maybe it's not. But I mean, is forgiveness, is restoration, is it really for everyone? Really, everyone. Shouldn't the good people be rewarded? You see... What if, what if this story is part of a larger story? What if it's a story we find ourselves in every day? A story that goes right to the heart of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow God. What if God is saying everything's not lost? See, I believe in a God who's in the business of making alive things that were once dead. I believe in a God who restores. I believe in a God who's interested in resurrection, in raising things to new life. And I believe that this story that Jesus tells, this parable, is all about that. It's all about the one, because he cares for the one, each and every one. See, what if this story, what if this story is not just a story that happened then? What if it's a story that happens again and again? And somehow we fit into it. There's a couple of things I want to note. Um, first, this is, this story is from the Gospel of Luke. And we can ask ourselves, or I often like to ask myself, um, when I'm reading something from, from Luke, um, is there, is there some way in which um, the writer of this is, is showing Jesus to be a champion of the outcasts. See, for me, that's one of the key themes that runs throughout the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus, again and again, shows himself to be the one who's there for the people that nobody else cares about. When we look at verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, um Just to give you a little bit of context, we see Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. But also we see that the Pharisees are there, which is interesting. And it speaks to the regard with which the Pharisees held Jesus. You see, they'd only eat with someone of a similar social status as themselves. They'd only be seen with an observant Jew, with a good Jew. So the Pharisees obviously thought Jesus was was a pretty good Jew and he was doing a good job. Yet this meal also speaks to the heart of Jesus and his compassion for those who were seen as the outcasts of society. These were real meals, intimate times. Times when he ate with the undesirables, the ones that no one wanted to eat with. His meal practice, his coming around and gathering around the table, was about inclusivity in an exclusive society. His agenda was so obvious during meal times. And his his meals, they carried uh, both a political and a religious significance. Religious because they were done in the name of the kingdom of God and political because they affirmed a very different version of society. See, the writer of this gospel, Luke, he's, he's saying that Jesus didn't teach these things in a vacuum. He lived them out. What he says the kingdom of God is like is how he lived. I wonder whether that's perhaps why his teaching was so powerful. You see, Jesus' meals can be um, equivalent to the, the homecoming in this story. Their celebration of the return. Jesus is claiming that when He does these things, the God of Israel is doing the same. He's welcoming everyone. Those who don't pass the test, those who are outcast, those who are down and out, they're welcome in God's restoration, and they're welcome at God's table. And when we talk when we talk about context when we talk about the kinds of places and ways that Jesus would interact with people, we need to start asking questions about what those people would have heard. What would it look like for a first century Jew to, to hear these words? To be sat around the table with Jesus? What would these words say to them? You see, Israel had this long history. A history that was framed by some major events. There's the story of the exodus, which is God rescuing his people out of Egypt and bringing them into a promised land. And there's also this story of the exile, which is God's people being displaced and God bringing them back and restoring them. And you see, the, um, the people had returned to their land, but they were under this Roman occupation They weren't free to do what they wanted to do at that time. They hadn't seen what they thought was the fulfillment from God. That God had promised something and it it hadn't come true yet. See, they thought what God was going to do, what God did in the Exodus is what God was going to do now. That was the expectation. And this story is the story that Jesus is telling. But crucially, Jesus is saying, It doesn't look like you thought it would which is so often the case with Jesus see he puts his listeners in the role of the older brother the one who rejects those who are returning and he says this is not just for you you already have everything I own this is for the one this is for the one who's been outcast it's not just for the Jew this new restored Israel is for everyone you can be a part of it too. See, people are being welcomed from beyond the boundaries of what's normally acceptable. And Jesus believed himself to be the agent of this return from exile where people can find a home and a welcome in God. And crucially for me, he told this story around the table. We've already touched on this a little bit. You know, he showed practically that everyone's welcome. He lived it out. There's a place at God's table for everyone. To quote one of my favorite authors, um, N.T. Wright, on this subject, he said this, it's quite a long quote, so bear with it. His welcoming, Jesus' welcoming, of all and sundry, was a sign that resurrection, forgiveness, restoration, return from exile, the reign of God, were all happening under the noses of the elder brothers the self-appointed stay-at-home guardians of their father's house you see the covenant this this relationship with god was being renewed and jesus's welcome to the to the outcasts was a vital part of that renewal just a final word on parables before we Um, Move on to the next bit. This story is a parable, and that's an ancient Jewish way of telling stories with a meaning. But I often find that the beauty of a parable is not so much that it happened, but that it happens again and again. So I was reading up on this talk, and I found people speculating. They were they were saying things like, um, "Oh, so when he went off to be a pig farmer." they would have fed the pigs with these certain kinds of pellets um, and they would have contained these these particular ingredients. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. But what a profound way to miss the point entirely of what Jesus is saying. You see, these, these questions need to be asked and people enjoy asking them and answering them. But the point is that these are stories that happen. They happen to you, they happen to me. We find ourselves in these stories. And that's the beauty that Jesus can speak right here and right now into our situations. So if that's the context, how does this story play out? What can the characters tell us? I would suggest that the context acts as like a frame of reference We've got our frame of reference now for, for this story. A lens through which we can interact with the characters in the story and we can understand them a little bit more. See, we all fit in. And it all begins with God's declaration that everyone's everything's not lost. See, everyone's loved. The first character we come to in any detail is, is the sun. And the sun as we said, basically says to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead. The the request that he asks of his of his dad is not a normal request. I can't stress enough how abnormal it was. It's not just that it's odd now for us to say, Can I have my inheritance now, Dad, while you're still alive? It was really odd then. There's it, was, it goes against Jewish customs. There's, there's Jewish writing that says, "Don't give your inheritance away until the hour of your death." On some occasions, people might have said, "Well," wrote the equivalent to a will and said, "Well, you know, I'm going to split this off. You're going to have this, and you're going to have that, and that's how it's going to be when I when I finally go." Um, but how more abnormal was it to say, "Well, no, you can you can have it now." And not only can you have it now, you can sell it off, and you can take the money, and you can waste it. See, the father should have should have turned him away with nothing. If we're talking about the culture, and talking about what should have happened, and what the hearers would have heard. They would have heard a father who was weak. He's saying, Not only do I wish you were dead, Dad, I'm going to throw away everything you worked for. Watch me while I do it. It's pretty brutal stuff. See, these are images of becoming outcast, becoming a person who rejects the promises of God, living outside of his covenant, of his promises, saying, God, you're no good to me, I wish you were dead and living as though he was. We've talked about how being an employee of a Gentile pig farmer was the lowest of the low, rock bottom, worse than untouchable. But the image it paints is of someone who serves and feeds the very rejection of God. And so this man came to the end of his tether, and he came up with a a grand plan that cap in hand he'd return to his father and say dad I'm still useful to you I can still work my way out of this I can still be of some use, I can still repair the damage and that's when the father steps in see this father I've written down that he's a failure and we don't normally see it that way but Everything in Jewish convention, everything that the hearers would have heard, would suggest that this father was a failure. His son, one son hates him, another son runs away, wastes all his money, he's weak willed, he's a father of very little stature, he's allowed his sons to dishonour him without doing anything to stop them. This guy would have lost all his standing in the community. Everyone would have thought, this guy is like the worst father. If there was a reality TV show for worst fathers in those days, they didn't have TV, so it would have to be like a parchment written, sort of like maybe a cartoon, I don't know. Um, maybe they had cartoons, I don't know. Um, he would be on that TV show anyway. Jewish custom dictates that he didn't give away his inheritance. You don't give it away. But he defies convention. See, this father defies convention. He actively gives up his rights. He abdicates the honor. He becomes nothing. See, this reminds me of a passage in Philippians where Jesus empties himself and he gives up Equality with God. He doesn't consider it something to be used to his own advantage. But he makes himself nothing. That really rings a bell for me there. See, the father becomes nothing to restore the life of the one. Isn't that what Jesus is all about? Isn't that an image of Jesus? You know, restoration of relationship. Return to belonging, and reconciliation of, of those in exile. It's interesting that the repentance of the Son is only possible through the love of the Father. In Romans 2, 4, it says that God's kindness leads us to repentance. And if the Father in this story is God, he made himself nothing so that we might live. You know, in the Bible it says that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This father's welcome and Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners is the story of exile and return. It's this grand story of Israel that Jesus is retelling. It's repeated for the one and it's repeated for us now again and again. The reckless father... Gives away what has, by Jewish law, become rightfully his, become rightfully the the elder sons at the end. See, so he doesn't. When he splits the inheritance, he doesn't split it just to the one son and keeps the rest. He splits it between the two sons. So the older son owns everything. So when he says at the end, "You already own everything I have." He's being totally honest because he's already given it all to the older son. So the dad is just living basically off the charity of the older son. So when this wasteful son comes back and his dad sees him from far off and he gives him a ring and he gives him a robe and he gives him a meal he tells his other son, the elder son to react with the same kind of reckless generosity He says, all that I have is yours. I've already given you everything I have. So join with me in giving it away. Don't keep it to yourself. I mean, that says that God's economy is different to our own. That God asks us to recklessly abandon. To give up everything. For the sake of the one. And then there's this grand restoration. happens. The father puts aside his anger and he welcomes back his son and he rejoices in his good choice and he forgets all about his bad choice. How much does that show that God loves each and every one of us and he shows us how to love each other? In love, you see, he looks beyond our excuses and our plans to fix things fix things. He welcomes us with a robe and with a ring and with a meal. And I had some things I wanted to say about the elder son but I think I'll I think I'll move on. You see God restores He restores each and every one of us. He adopts us As his sons and daughters. Even though our mess doesn't deserve it, even though the things that we waste say, God, I'm living like you were dead. I wish you weren't here. But when we turn back to him, he says, Come into my house, come and have a meal, come and celebrate. Because I love you. And I've always loved you. And you're always, you've always been my son or my daughter. Maybe this story, here at the end of the parable, it remains to be worked out. Will the brothers be reconciled? Does the wasteful son get fully restored? Does he, does he live as though he's back at home forever? Does the older son embrace the generosity of his father? And welcome his brother. Has the move of grace by the Father been a foolish one? You see, perhaps, perhaps it is foolish of the Father to think that everything's going everything's to be alright now. Maybe there's more work to be done. In 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, it says that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. See, foolishness looks weak. It looks dishonorable. It looks vulnerable. It accepts humiliation. It embraces rejection. But crucially, it doesn't let go. Perhaps we ought to react like the father and not like the elder brother maybe being about the one is about being called to a bigger narrative to a story that's bigger than just ourselves maybe god's reckless abandon ought to move us with compassion for the one are we are we like the father are we on the lookout are we ready with a robe and a ring. And a meal. Are we waiting to embrace the one? Or are we caught up? Are we caught up in bitterness and rejection? We you have a heart that says. Actually no you're not enough. I remember you. I remember what you did. Is that, is that what we say? Or do we say. I remember what you did. But I love you anyway. Because God does. See, the challenge is something that we've heard time and time again, to love our neighbor. But it's to truly love. To truly love. To usher in the kingdom of God. To say with boldness and with confidence that there's a place at God's table for each and every person. That regardless of what they may have done, what they may be doing, what they may be a part of, what they may go and do as, they, as soon as they leave or chat with us or whatever, that God loves them. And God's ready and waiting for them with a robe and with a ring and with a meal. See, the father didn't let his son finish his apology. He, sho- he showered him with love. He says, stop right there, son. I love you. And now, as we leave here tonight, may we remember that the Jesus who showers us with love, may we remember the God who showers us with love, may we remember that God is singing over us, may we remember that we're part of a bigger story, and may we be a part of that restoration for the one.